0: Well, hello everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be in the first epistle of John today. So we're going to be in first John um, running through the first three chapters. And uh, so this letter is written from, you guessed it, from John, and this is John, the disciple of Jesus. Um, And he is writing uh, mainly for some people who have been uh, under persecution, um, some people that have been experiencing false teaching. Um, Most likely this letter was in response to um, some misunderstandings about Jesus, um, his work, his expectations for us as believers, things like that. So to correct some of that, again, we talk about it all the time. It's hard to totally recreate the situation for ourselves when we weren't there, but This is kind of based on the internal evidence. So, the evidence within the letter, um, based on the topics he covers, how he talks about it, um, we kind of try to piece together best we can what the occasion he was writing to about. That was, that didn't make any sense. You know what I'm saying, though. You should never use two prepositions back to back. Come on, Blake. But John doesn't use two prepositions back to back because he knows what he's doing. And he is writing to people who are probably in Ephesus. So, you may remember, um, if you've read Revelation's beginning, um, John was not uh, was not martyred in the same way that the rest of the apostles were. So John actually goes through a period of exile on an island called Patmos um, that was a Roman kind of prison island. So he goes there. After that, things get a little dicey about what happens with John, because we don't know for certain that he returned from Patmos, but there is a strong, there's some strong evidence that he actually did come back from that exile and lived out his last years in Ephesus. So there was a, um, as Christianity became more accepted in the Roman empire, after some of the uh, big time persecutors like Nero and Domitian, um, there were some emperors that were a little more favorable toward Christianity. Um, eventually of course, uh, Constantine making it the official religion of the empire quite a switcheroo by the time it gets to there, but um, that John may have returned from Patmos and lived out his life in Ephesus. Um, So there's some uh, early church fathers that mention his presence there. There's a like little snippet from this guy named Eusebius who talks about um, like people being returned from exile. Um, All that to say, it's not super clear exactly where he was, but most likely based on the evidence, he was probably in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. Um, so that would make it maybe a little different than revelation where we know at least he received that revelation. He says in, in well, he's on the Island of Patmos. So that's a lot more background than you needed, but here it is. So, um, the purpose of this book, we actually get a lot of really great purpose statements from John himself, which really helps us understand why he's writing this. Um, so there's four, uh, the first is in one, four, it says, we write this to make our joy complete Second one is in chapter 2, verse 1. I write this to you so that you will not sin. The third is in 2.26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And the fourth is in 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So those are our four purpose statements we get in John. So like I said, Hard to totally recreate the situation, but it's really helpful when the author gives us some purpose statements. Why are you writing this, John? Well, let me give you four statements about while I'm writing it, why I'm writing it. Very helpful for us. So um, something else that we need to go into this book with our eyes wide open on is John is writing to believers. And we especially see that in that fourth purpose statement he gives. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Okay. So we're talking about believers, um, and he wants them to know that they have eternal life. So it's legitimate believers, not just people who are have got maybe a um, mental assurance. Or, but it seems like it's people that, to the heart level, people that have received the Holy Spirit. But some of the things that John's going to say are going to be uh, are going to sound harsh and can make us feel um, a little bit maybe unsure of what it means to be a believer during parts of of this, because he's going to talk a little bit about. Um, nobody who loves Jesus sins, nobody who's a true believer, like has sin, like, and things like that. There's some statements that when you read them, you're like, Ooh, but I have sin in my life still. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? So I want to get out ahead of that and help us see in chapter one, some things he's going to tell us that I think we have to understand, give us a lens for the rest of the book. So, uh, verses eight through 10 in chapter one, say this, it says, if we ha- say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So here in the first chapter, John tells us if we pretend that there's no sin in our life, that we are deceiving ourselves and that the truth is not in us. If we say that we have no sin, then in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So we make Jesus a liar if we say we have not sinned. So the tenses are also fairly helpful for us in these verses to help us understand. Um, So verse eight, it's in the present tense. If we say we have no sin. So if we say that we presently do not have any sin, we deceive ourselves. So that seems like to be a pretty good indication that he knows. And we're going to get into some other things that help us understand that too, that he is not saying that Christians don't Still have sin in their life that we still need redemption. We still need God God's grace every day. Um, and then the second one in verse ten is actually a perfect tense. So the perfect tense in Greek is one of the most um, one of the most meaningful tenses, and it typically describes a past reality with future implications. So basically, saying uh, if we say we have not had we have not sinned in the past, and that it has consequences for us currently. So that's kind of the idea. Um, so if we talked about Christ has given himself up for us, it's, it's something he did in the past that has present implications for us as believers. So if we say that we do, we have not sinned in the past and that it does not still currently affect us, then that's what he's saying makes him a liar. So that perfect tense, that present tense uh, gives us a good indication that it's not just like, oh, if we said we didn't sin before we had Jesus, then we're deceiving ourselves. I think he's recognizing that believers have sinned currently. And actually, we're going to see this as well in the next passage. So we'll start with uh, verse 2, 1 through 6, and we'll get a little bit even more background. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, so we'd read one of those purpose statements already from verse 1, but... And again, he's making this concession. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So again, an acknowledgement that there is still sin in believers. Now, we also read one of those statements that can make you kind of recoil in fear when he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Because we know that every day we struggle to keep Jesus' commandments, to live out a life that is um, pleasing to the Lord. So I think we can all read that and say, mm, there's plenty of times I don't keep his commandments. So does that make me a liar? Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like and what that means for us, um, because it is not something that we just ignore. Um, but also knowing that we have security, we have an advocate with the Father that Jesus' uh, death was not, and resurrection was not just um, for the sins we'd already committed, but also future sins we commit. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But here's kind of what John is saying here to kind of get his argument going. He's telling them, these believers, that the true mark of a believer, that a person that truly knows Jesus, is going to walk as he walked, that is going to obey his commandments. So it's, again, something I feel like we've covered many times, but it always bears repeating that our salvation is only by grace by the grace of God and it's through faith in Jesus completed work on the cross but a uh, true believer we expect to see life change so it's not that our works earn us any sort uh, any iota of worth for our salvation it's all by God's grace only but at the same time when if we have truly encountered Jesus we truly have the holy spirit we should expect that our lives start to conform more into the image of Christ. And that's a very up and down journey as we will all go on. But we want to see that there's fruit in our lives. That's the sign that we have truly believed. So he's talking to some believers. As I mentioned at the beginning, He they may be struggling to deal with that grace and also good works kind of tension that we all walk in. Um, and so he's letting them know, this isn't your hall pass to do whatever you want. Everyone who actually believes in Jesus should be trying to keep his commandments, should be able to be trying to walk in the way that he walked. And so throughout the uh, next two chapters, we're going to see, I'm going to identify three ways that he wants these believers to obey. And so therefore is also talking to us, wants us to obey in this way. So the three ways, I won't spoil them. We'll find them out on the way. So the first one, though, I will go ahead and spoil because we're going to talk about it right now, is he wants these believers and he wants us and God wants us to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. So we see this and this one comes up a lot throughout these passages. So the first we see is here in chapter two, verses seven through 11. It says, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And I'll go ahead and skip down to chapter 3, 11 through 14, where he's going to give us another uh, another indication of this. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So this first thing that he wants these believers to know, the first sign that he wants them to show that shows that they have had a life-changing encounter with Jesus is that they love the brothers and sisters in Christ, that they love their fellow believers, okay? So this is one of the most enduring commands in all of scripture, and John alludes to this in both of those passages that I read. I'm writing to you no new commandment. So we know that um, the uh, the greatest commandment, right? Somebody asked Jesus, "What's the greatest commandment?" He tells him, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself." So he gives him that. Um, so that's obviously shortly before John is writing, and by shortly I mean a couple of decades. But um, this is a command that has existed really for almost all time. Uh, the first time we see "love your neighbor as yourself" is actually in Leviticus. I know not a lot of us spend a ton of time in Leviticus because it's. Kind of icky sometimes, but there are lots of great things in there. So I'd encourage you, if you never have, to read it, and it does show us some things about God's character, God's heart. Anyways, in Leviticus nineteen eighteen is when we get this: you should not beat down on your neighbor, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so again, this is no new commandment: loving your neighbor as yourself, as a God commanded the Israelites then. He's commanding us now that that is how we are to treat one another. We are to show one another love. And the truth is we cannot love Jesus well. We cannot love God well without loving one another. Okay. It says whoever hates his brother is still in darkness. So if we say that we have great love for Jesus, but it does not show up in the way we treat one another, then we're missing something. There's a disconnect. There's a reason that when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, that he says to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, that they're not separate. They're completely intertwined. Our love for God should result in our love for the brothers and sisters. Our love for the brothers and sisters reflects the love that we have for God, reflects the love that God has for us as well. So that's an enduring part of scripture We are called to love one another. We're called to love all people, right? We're also called to love our enemies. What we see in scripture, and of course, scripture is largely for the church, for believers. um, We see this huge emphasis on loving one another. And I think it's kind of one of those things where if, if we can't love one another, when we share this great hope and joy in Christ together, if we can't love one another, how in the world are we supposed to love our enemies if we can't even love one another? And I'm not saying it's easy. All of us have experienced brothers and sisters in Christ who are hard to love, and some people are harder to love for us than others. But that's the that's the call. We talked about it also this last week in Philemon, that book about this runaway slave who's coming back to the person who was his uh, was his master, and Paul sending this letter to the master saying that he wants them to be reconciled to one another as brothers in christ we don't have the option for loving one another being reconciled to one another it's our imperative it's absolutely essential to healthy ministry church life healthy spiritual life we can't love god if we're not loving one another so that's the first of these ways in which john wants these believers to obey that he wants us to obey is to love the brothers and sisters in christ The second one that he is going to give is a little shorter, but still very important. Is he's going to tell them, do not love the world. So in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he tells them, do not love the world. So John um, is uh, one of the, of the writers in the new Testament. He is one of the ones who follows um, some recognizable patterns, the best. So John in his writing, whether it's in uh, the gospel of John or whether it's in the epistles, there's a, a lot of times a darkness, light motif that he's going to jump into. We already I've seen that when he said darkness has passed away, the um, true light is already shining. Um, he often uses that darkness versus light motif to um, explain spiritual things. Another thing that is pretty common in John is his use of the term the world and how he describes it. So, in John, when you are reading the world, uh, not that it works this way every time, but the thing you should suspect whenever you see him refer to the world in his writings is that he's referring to sinful, unrepentant humanity. That That is what he has in mind. And I think for those of us who have been in, in church long enough, we, we kind of maybe know that uh, symbolism of the world symbolizes those that are apart from God. But that's what John is going for here. Don't love the things of sinful humanity, the things of sinful humanity. Humanity, if you love sinful humanity and the things of sinful humanity, you cannot love God. So that's what he's telling his readers. What he's telling us is that a love for things that are apart from God, a love for things that are are sinful, um, does not coexist with a love for God. And that seems pretty simple, right? Like, oh, yeah, if we love sin, how are we going to love God well? And sometimes we don't necessarily realize what role these things of the world have in our lives. So there are sins in our lives that we recognize as sin, but we may not recognize how much we truly have come to value and love them. There are things in our lives that as much as we want to get rid of them, the thing that's keeping us from getting rid of them is because they have become useful and valuable to us. Let's not think that sin is just this thing that we are like, oh yeah, that's obviously yucky. I don't want it. And it's so easy to let go of. The reason that sin persists in our lives is because we've found some sort of value in it. Okay, so that may be um, if, you know, maybe a sin I struggle with is pride. I have found that Doing these things that puff me up have had really positive impacts in the business world. Uh, Let's say if I have harbored like a temptation toward lust, I have found that this temptation toward lust has presented me something, whether it be enjoyment, stress relief, whatever it may be. If I struggle with gossip, I've found that this gossip makes people like me better because I have all the dirt. So it's become precious to me. And I think these things sneak up on us. I don't think we always think of it in that way, but it's true. And that just really shows our sinfulness that we recognize that in the world, in a worldly sense, these sins give us something in return. And that's why they tend to stick around. So to truly love God and to truly Aside the things of the world costs us something. Now, ultimately, what it costs us is something that is already passing away. Like he says in 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. Those sins that we hold on to that give us some perceived benefit in the world, all of that is passing away. But sometimes it's hard for us to have that eternal perspective. And so what John is telling us is: don't love those things. Those things are worthless. Whatever you get from them is ultimately worthless. But if we do the will of God, those things abide forever. The things of God abide forever. Sometimes they will give us benefit in this life. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes it will uh, present us with uh, far more difficulty than it does ease. For example, um, let's think of some fruits of the spirit. Um, Being joyful is typically going to... uh, People like joyful people, right? Right? Um, so that may, in many cases, like having the joy of the Lord may be something that's very attractive to people, but, uh, at the same time, um, maybe let's think goodness. What is goodness? Sometimes goodness is opposed to what the world thinks is good. So when we stand up for something that is goodness in the kingdom of God, that's not in the kingdom of the world, that could result in you being on the outside looking in, in terms of some of those, uh, worldly things. So we have to recognize that. Uh, The things of God are the things that are eternal, but they don't always give us the benefit we're looking for here. Sometimes our love of the world, we don't realize it's a love until we realize what it costs to give it up. And so that's what he's telling us. These things are going to be taken from you. Give them up willingly. Do something that is eternal. Do something that is a desire of God, not a desire of the world, not a desire of the flesh, that sinful part of us that exists. So that's his second command is that we do not love the world. And so the third that he's going to talk about is he's going to tell us to not make a practice of sinning. So this is kind of getting back to what we talked to at the very beginning, that we recognize there's sin in our lives. And if we say that there's not, then we are liars. And we make Jesus a liar. But at the same time, people who believe in Jesus, there should not be this practice of sinning. So here's what he says in chapter 3, verse 7 Yep, yeah, here's a sin that I feel like I've been going 20 years with and no, n- no reprieve, no respite, maybe periods of obedience, but there's this sin in my life and it's been around for as long as I can remember. Okay, and that kind of makes us again, we start to get a little sweaty, we start to get a little itchy, saying, oh, does that mean I'm not a believer? Well, here's, I think, what we have to recognize. First, what he's saying is, if if our ideal is to practice sinning, then that is from a place of sinfulness. That makes sense, right? It's from the devil. It's not of God. If we want to make a practice of sinning, that is not of God. And in fact, Jesus appeared so that we would not be enslaved to that. So because of our sin nature, before we are redeemed, before we have the Holy Spirit, we have this sinful nature that we really cannot keep under control. And we are we are sinners, and there's nothing we can do to not be sinners. So he's saying Christ came to destroy the works of the devil so that people don't have to continuously practice sinning like he did before we believed in Jesus. So that's the first thing is if we're making a practice of sinning, we are not acting out of an identity that is in Christ, and we're we're really not living a life that follows in what. Christ wants for us, that what he came to die for, that what he came to sacrifice so that we could live in freedom and obedience. But then also we have to remember that we have a different view of our sin now if we've believed in God. It says he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Before we know Jesus, we... We may come to a place where the Holy Spirit is um, convicting us of that sin, but at the same time, uh, generally we are going to be numb to that. We do not have uh, the Holy Spirit in us, even though the Holy Spirit may be bringing conviction of sin, like John talks about in his gospel. But we can keep on sinning and really not have a problem with it because we don't have the Holy Spirit to bring it, that, that change in us. So we are we are fine if we keep on sinning. But once we have the Holy Spirit, we're not fine continuing sinning. Once we believe in Jesus, we know his word, what he expects of us, what he's done, the love we have for him. We're, we are not comfortable the same way we were before we knew Him. So no one born of God makes the practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning. You won't keep on sinning in the same way if you are truly a believer in Jesus. And that doesn't mean that, oh, and all my, oh, my sin was totally eradicated. Remember, if we say that, we make him a liar. The truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves. But at the same time, we can't keep on sinning the way we were before. If there's no change in how I feel about my sin, my practice of sin, then I need a heart check. I need to be honest with myself. Like, is this something I really believe? Or is this just something I'm kind of going, going along with, going with the flow? So anyone who's born of God, the way that we interact with our sin, the way that we live out our sin is different. So that sin may still be present in a struggle, but it's no longer a, this is how I live and this is how I like it. So that makes a change. So that's, I think, what John is telling. Don't make a No one who loves God continues to practice sinning in the same way that you did before. And that if we have deeply rooted sin um, in our lives, you know, it may take a, a long time to get it out because, again, sometimes we find those sins to be helpful to us in some way. So that's what he's telling his readers here is no one born of God is going to continue sinning in the same way. You can't live with the same peace that you did before because there's now a Holy Spirit that is helping to guide us into into truth. So as we conclude, I want to just read this last part of chapter three, which I think gives us a nice conclusion and helps wrap a lot of this up says by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him for whenever our heart condemns us god is greater than our heart and he knows everything beloved if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence before god and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son jesus christ and love one another just as he commanded us Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So there's a a ton of depth to this passage, and I just want to cover it quickly. First, this realization that sometimes our hearts condemn us. Sometimes we read these things and I feel condemned that my faith in Jesus is not legitimate. But let's say God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Okay, this is how we shall know the truth and reassure our hearts before him that even when uh, we are struggling in sin, even more struggling in doubt that God is greater than those struggles that we have in our heart. That's a comfort that we have, even in the midst of this, when we can feel like real bad people. And it says, if our heart does not condemn us, if we own up to who we are in Christ, we can have confidence before God that we can come to him and ask him. And it says, because we keep his commandment and do what pleases him. And this is, I think we can't miss this in verse 23 and how this applies to the rest of what we've been talking. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ and love one another. Just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God and him. And by this, we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So ultimately obedience to the commands of Christ to the commands of God are to believe. That's what pulls this all together. That's what allows all of this to happen. All this hopeful righteousness to happen is that we obey this first command and that's to believe that we have salvation in Jesus' name. That we didn't earn it from somewhere else but that we believe in Jesus. We love one another. And this is how we know that we abide in him through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's our seal. Even when we're not living up to what John would have us do in obedience to Christ. We know that the greatest commandment here is that we love God. And one the way we love God is by saying, I believe in Jesus. That's how we love God. And we receive the Holy Spirit. So even in those times where we doubt, those times we're struggling in sin, we're not living in righteousness. That's our, that's our hope. That's our seal. We know that we believe in the name of Jesus. And that's what it means to obey his commands. And we have that Holy Spirit which seals that hope, that future redemption that we have in Jesus.